motto of Living University is recapture true values. So I want to ask you today, what values do you live by? What values do you practice? If someone were to ask you that question, what would you answer? I asked my wife on the way here in the car, and uh, she started off, well, uh, God's commandments are righteousness, Psalm 119, 172. She said the whole Bible is God's values, Matthew 4.4 and Luke 4.4. I remember back in 1961, I was just coming into the truth at that time and listening to the Radio Church of God. I was working as a transportation engineer in Norfolk, but living in Virginia Beach. And my landlady <clears throat> came, saw me that I wasn't attending church. She said, what church do you attend? I said, well, I attend the Radio Church of God because the church was on the radio and there was no local congregation there. And I think the closest congregation was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, some uh, few hundred miles away. So I attended the Radio Church of God. She said, what do you believe? I said, I believe that man should live by every word of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. So that was my answer as a new convert in God's church. These are values that God has given us to live by. And they are living values. And that's the title of the sermon today, Living Values. Today we'll discuss the living value of human beings, particularly those in God's church. How valuable are you? And how do you really recapture true values? We'll see some of those true values exemplified tonight in the fun show. And how do you relate to others? How do you value others the way God tells you to? We heard about that in the sermonette. But first, let's consider how valuable you are. Are you worth anything? How valuable are you? Just nine weeks from last Thursday, God's church around the world will be observing the New Testament Passover, uh, the night of April 2nd, 2015. God's ministers every year exhort us to examine ourselves in preparation for that particular annual memorial of the death of our Savior. In fact, the March-April 2015 Living Church News, which you'll be receiving in a few weeks, features these articles that will help us prepare for the Passover. Self-examination, these things because became our examples. How did Jesus Christ die? Bound to one another. The death of Judas. And Dr. Meredith, dear brethren, will you walk with God? We just heard that beautiful special music. And his editorial, Inspiring Examples of Faith. God has given you value, and the greatest physical gift that you and I have is what? It's your mind. In his book, Mystery of the Ages, Mr. Herbert Armstrong asked this question, what is the real value of a human life? It's on page 105. He describes the difference between animal brain and human mind. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, Mr. Armstrong describes 
the spirit in man. And that's what the Apostle Paul introduced here and revealed in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So animals cannot understand the things of man because they don't have the human spirit. They do not have the spirit in man. The human mind is a mystery to some. I even had a professor of psychology in my master's degree program, and he was going, what is the human mind? And it still is a mystery to them. But we know that the human mind is human brain plus the human spirit, which makes the human mind. And some of the great scientists don't know that. We had articles in the Plain Truth magazine years ago, one written by Dr. Robert Kuhn, who was a brain specialist and wrote an excellent article, which Mr. Armstrong followed up on. Mr. Armstrong wrote, Mystery of the Ages, page 107, What is the value of a physical human being? The human spirit in mortal man, he writes, makes possible a direct contact from the great spirit God. There is no direct channel of communication between the dumb animal brain and the mind of the supreme God. What is the real value of human life? The real value of human life, then, lies solely within the human spirit combined with the human brain. It should be stated at once that this human spirit is not perceived by the most highly educated psychologists, yet it is the very essence of the human mind. Then on page 110, Mr. Herbert Armstrong writes, Philosophers think of human worth as supreme value in itself alone. They speak of human dignity. They speak of the innate God powers within each human. They advocate self-confidence, self-glorification. They make mortal man to think of himself as immortal God. So he concludes this section on the value of human life. The sole value of human life lies in the human spirit and the potential of being begotten of God, later to be born very God, a child in God's family. Man is not God within himself, but only mortal flesh and blood, with a brain empowered with intellect by the human spirit. Therefore, a man of himself is infinitesimally of less value than the self-professed wise of the world suppose. But once begotten by the supreme God through the very life and spirit of the living God dwelling in him, a human being's potential is of infinitely greater value than the world has understood. So are you worth anything? What is your value? God gives us that wonderful truth and perspective that we can be his immortal, glorified, spiritual children and be born into his royal family. We heard about in the sermonette. So of what value are you? Consider who and what you are, that you're made in the image of God. And God created human beings with mind power, with the human spirit combined, once baptized, with God's Holy Spirit. Man is not an immortal soul, but he has a human spirit. I won't turn there, but there's one example of uh, 
God using the human spirit in Cyrus. It said in Second Chronicles 36.22 that the word of the eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing. Turn to Matthew, the sixth chapter, Matthew 6 and verse 25. So as you examine yourself for the Passover, all of us should realize just how valuable you are with your God-given human mind. In fact, we have a couple sermons on the mind. Sermon number 540. Love God with all your mind, and Sermon 792, the battle for your mind. Here we see just how valuable you are. One perspective that Jesus gives here in Matthew 6 and verse 25. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor weep nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How valuable are you? Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to a stature? So when you see the birds of the air... And ever since I've read this scripture, I've been looking out, found um, robins in my yard today and little finches. And I think, think of this scripture. God knows every bird in, this, in the universe, well, I'd say a planet Earth, and he knows who they are, what they are, where, they're, where they are, what they're doing. And he says, you're of more value than sparrows, and he knows every one of them. Take another example. Jesus repeats this principle in Matthew the 10th chapter, verse 27. Matthew 10, verse 27. Whatever I tell you in the dark, he tells his ministers, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body, In hell, we do not have an immortal soul. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Every bird that falls to the ground does not fall apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Well, you think, well, yeah, I'm I'm more value than sparrows anyway. But the comparison is that God knows every element of his creation. And he cares for that creation. Turn to Luke, the 12th chapter. Luke 12, and uh, starting with verse 4. Luke 12 and verse 4. And this is a parallel account, but given in a little different wording. Luke 12, verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after they have no more, that they can do. 
But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell or Gehenna. Yes, I say to you, fear him. But then he gives the positive side. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them, not one of them is forgotten by God. Not one sparrow is forgotten by God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus was talking to unconverted people. And he says God values you. In other words, he values every human being on the face of the earth. How do we view our neighbors? Well, this past uh, Wednesday morning about 4 o'clock, I was awakened and saw all the emergency flashing lights out on the street. And there was a house, three houses down from us, was burning down to the ground. I went out in my pajamas and, uh, of course, put on a heavy coat. But uh, after finding out that the family was able to get out safely, uh, the policeman in front of my uh, house, I told him, well, look, if the family needs a place to stay, you know, they're very welcome to come to our home. We will be able to take care of them. Well, we found out later that they went to stay with relatives and then later on in a uh, motel, a long-stay motel, because the insurance was paying for that. The uh, Charlotte Observer on Thursday reported on that fire. Um, they had all their three cars burned down. They had uh, all their cell phones lost, lost everything uh, in that house. You can drive by it. It's a shell still standing there. The Charlotte Observer reported on Thursday, Independence High basketball player Marcus Thomas hit the game-winning shot Tuesday night with six seconds left in a 40-39 to 39 win against Porter Ridge. A few hours later, as he slept, his life changed. Thomas, a 16-year-old junior, was awakened around 3.30 a.m. by his older brother, Kevin, who was screaming, Fire! 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 Their home was burning. I'm thinking this is a drill, Marcus Thomas said Wednesday. I'm thinking, oh, he's just playing around. But I looked outside my window, and the car was on fire. It was crazy. I thought I was in a movie. Marcus jumped out of bed. Kevin Thomas, 25, then woke his parents, Mark and Sylvia, and his sister, Bree, 19. Everyone got in single file and got out of the two-story house in a Mint Hill subdivision. About five minutes after they were out of the house, Mark Thomas said there was a loud explosion, and debris from it struck his daughter on the leg. You know, here we are out there, Four o'clock in the morning, 23 degrees out there. And it really was a sobering wake-up call for me personally. And Dr. Meredith and the ministry have been warning you and God's people for years. Be prepared for a disaster. And I've asked you to make sure that you have two weeks or a week's supply of water on hand. Uh, Some of you have gone above and beyond, and I know that you... Uh, in the past have had what is called a grab-and-go bag. If you, like this family, had to leave on a moment's notice, not be able to take anything, you might be able to get a grab-and-go grab-and-go bag. How many of you have a grab-and-go bag? You just like to see your hands. Okay, Mr. and Mrs. Seselka, their family, and another family up here, and another 
person up there. Good. We have about five people out of 260 that are prepared for emergencies. But I do want to encourage you to think about that because as we were talking at lunch with Dr. Meredith yesterday, uh, the other day, when Jesus said, you know, the time to go, he said, do not go back into your house. And he said, pray that your flight not be in the winter nor on the Sabbath day. So we need to make sure that we are prepared for those dangers. By the way, when Jesus told us to pray in Matthew 24:20 that your flight not be in the winter on the Sabbath day, that was part of the um, telecast last weekend, which was five strategies of prayer. And I said I was going to test you this week how many of you could know, name all five of those strategies. So I won't... Uh, I'll just take a survey. How many of you think you can recite all five strategies of prayer that were announced in the telecast last week? Let's see your hands. Do I see any hands? <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. Thank you, Miss Williams. I'm glad you were faithful in following up. <clears throat> and, uh, of course, I could ask you how many of you know all 12 in the 12 keys to answer prayer. But I won't, add, I won't take a survey on that. But we do need to pray that our flight not be in the winter nor on the Sabbath day. But God tells us that we are of more value than many sparrows. He said, not one sparrow is forgotten before God. That was Luke 12 and verse 6. So God loves us. He loves our neighbors. He loves sinners so much that he sent the Logos, the one who became flesh, the Word, to pay for our sins. Turn to John, the third chapter. The last time I took a survey here and asked how many of you know what is the precious verse of the Bible or the golden verse of the Bible, about 25% of you knew. <clears throat> John 3.16. How valuable are you? And how does God view you in terms of value? Verse 16, John 3. For God so loved the world, not the things in the world, but the people, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's ultimate love. That's extreme love. That's God's love. That's how much he values you. Mr. Weston has been writing a series in the LCN on the precious verse, John 3.16. And in the July-August 2012 LCN article, The Greatest Love, he wrote the following. John records these words of Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. John 15, verses 12 through 14. John 3.16 reminds us that God the Father loved us so much that he voluntarily gave his Son to be our friend, to empty himself of his divine privileges, that he might escape death, that we might escape death and have eternal life. Could there be any greater love in all the universe than what was experienced on that Passover day nearly 2,000 years ago? End of quote. How much does God value you? He sent his son to die for you, to 
to redeem you by shedding his blood. My turn to Romans, the fifth chapter. Mr. McNair quoted this last week in his excellent sermon on Are You Saved? Romans, the fifth chapter. You can read this whole section, actually, Romans 5, but Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Just think about that. When you were an enemy of God, you were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, the future and ultimate salvation that God gives us. So as we examine ourselves for the Passover, think about the value that God has placed upon each and every one of us. Think about the great gift that God has given you even as a physical human being through the human spirit. And then additionally, the Holy Spirit. As Mr. Armstrong stated, quote, once begotten by the supreme God through the very life and spirit of the living God dwelling in him, a human being's potential is of infinitely greater value than the world has understood. Jesus said that God knows every hair on our heads. He wants you in his kingdom. You are of living value. Let's turn to 1 Peter, the first chapter, 1 Peter 1, which again gives a perspective on your value. 1 Peter 1, verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves through the time of your stay here in fear knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. For he indeed was ordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So all the silver, all the gold in the world could not pay for your sins. It was the priceless, valuable, extremely valuable blood of Jesus Christ that paid for your sins. So when you think about, am I worth anything? God thinks you are. Turn to Revelation, the fifth chapter. Revelation 5, we know the promise that will be kings and priests on the earth, but the preceding verse... Revelation 5, verse 9, tells us again how we were redeemed. He speaks to uh, Jesus, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So God declares just how valuable you are. You are of living value with the potential and promise of eternal life and eternal value in God's kingdom. We briefly discuss how God values us. Now let's ask, how do you value others? Do you judge others as unworthy sinners? 
who don't deserve your concern or your prayers. The second great commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves. Sometimes we look down on a beggar or a homeless person. We might even misjudge that person to have deserved his or her fate. But when we see what happens in tragedies like the burning house of one of our neighbors, you realize here they lived in a house, now they lost everything just in a morning's fire of over two or three hours. How did Jesus look at the crowds and the multitudes? Turn to Matthew, the ninth chapter. We want to follow his example. Matthew 9 and verse 35. Matthew 9 verse 35. And this, again, is another example of following Christ's instructions, which was one of the five strategies of prayer. Verse 35, Matthew... I'm on the wrong chapter here. Matthew 9, 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he thought, hey, they're nothing. No. He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Again, are you following Christ's instructions in praying? But notice that he was moved with compassion. Just a couple more examples. Matthew 14, verse 13. Matthew 14, verse 13. This was after John the Baptist was buried. In Matthew 14, verse 13, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. When the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. They were willing to walk miles just to be with Jesus, to see him, to hear him speak, and possibly to touch his robe so they could be healed. They followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. And so you have then the feeding of the thousands that were there. 5,000 men verse, beside women and children, verse 21. Chapter 15, verse 30. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. It was not one kind of disease or affliction that Jesus could not heal. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. 
So this time, there were 4,000 men beside women and children, verse 38. So he had compassion. Do we have compassion on others? Turn to 1 Peter, the third chapter. 1 Peter 3. God's mercies are new every morning, as it tells us in Lamentations. 1 Peter, the third chapter, verse 8. The Apostle Peter gives us the same instruction. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So we are called to have compassion for one another. How do you value others? Do you judge them unworthy of your concern? Turn to Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians 2, which is the key scripture for this section on how do you value others. I think you already know that scripture by heart. Philippians 2, starting, let's start in verse 1. Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. That's one of the fruits of the flesh. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. When we're considering living values, we need to value others better than ourselves. The NIV states it this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves. The English Standard Version says, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Do you do that? Is that a part of your character, a part of your nature? Do you consider yourself a doulos, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and that you are a servant of others? So we need the attitude of a servant. And, of course, you know the sevenfold mission that Dr. Meredith has outlined us, Number five is learn and practice servant leadership in all your dealings with others. So we need to be having that servant leadership attitude and practice that living value. In the January-February 2015 Living Church News, which is the current Living Church News, and I hope you've all received your copy and have been reading through the current January-February 2015 Living Church News. The Dear Brethren is titled Loyalty, Unity, and Servant Leadership. Dr. Meredith writes, It has always been encouraging to me 
that far more leading ministers came with us as we started the Global and Now Living Church of God than went with other organizations. For almost from the beginning, we had men such as D. Barter Partian, Carl McNair, John O'Gwynn, Carl Byersdorfer, Sidney Hegvold, Lynn Torrance, Ben Whitfield, and many, many others who had been around in the ministry or the work literally for decades. These men knew me and knew what, we, what they were doing. So it is much harder to shake them away from what they know is the truth and what they know about the work of God and its leadership. All of them believe in the correct form of government described clearly in the Bible, not just government from the top down, but, as I have emphasized dozens of times over the years, the approach of servant leadership and how we administer that government. I'm sure all of you older brethren can see that in our ministry. Servant leadership, brethren, is one way that we follow the true values of loving one another. Servant leadership involves outgoing concern. So how can you express that concern? One way is always be ready to ask, how can I help you? And it's uh, very encouraging to me if I'm in a, a store somewhere and I'm looking for something and someone, one of the clerks or sales agents comes, so how may I help you? So it's always very encouraging. At the Passover service, each year baptized members follow Christ's example of washing one another's feet. We'll take a look at that. We'll be reading it later on in the year, but let's take a look at it in the context of valuing others and serving others. John, the 13th chapter, and verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So Christ gave us an example. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So God gave us the example of servant leadership, that Jesus Christ was willing to humble himself, even to wash feet, to wash the feet of his disciples. And we've been given the mission, as Jesus well, inspired the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 and verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. So we need to be willing to serve and to help. And we do appreciate the volunteers here in the Charlotte congregation who have participated and served in the outreach program. Just last Wednesday, we had 10 volunteers from our Charlotte congregation that served wholesome home-cooked meals at the Ronald McDonald House to about 50 people. And these are families whose children are dealing with critical or terminal sickness. So I hope that's a part of your mission statement. That is, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those of the household of faith. So do we esteem others better than ourselves? Do we really love our neighbors as ourselves? Well, who's your neighbor? Well, one lawyer asked Jesus the same question, 
in Luke uh, the 10th chapter. You might turn there to Luke the 10th chapter, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So who is your neighbor? The lawyer had correctly recited to Jesus the two great commandments. And Jesus said to him, Luke 10 and uh, verse 28 You have answered rightly, do this, and you will live. Verse 29, Luke 10, But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus gave the parable then of the Good Samaritan. And at the end, verse 36, he says, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Verse 37, And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So that a lesson applies to all of us. One of those quotable quotes, I've uh, shared this with you before, but I try to list uh, in one of my files quotable quotes from some of them are humorous. Some of those are very deeply significant as this one. It was from Dr. Meredith's co-worker letter of October 10, 2005. I call it a quotable quote. There had been natural disasters in India and uh, other nations. And he says, talk about natural disasters. Even as I write, radio and television reports tell us that tens of thousands of human beings have perished in the powerful earthquake which just struck Pakistan and parts of India. Perhaps none of these people were truly acquainted with the God of the Bible, but every human being is precious in God's sight. Every human being is precious in God's sight. That's a quotable quote that's a part of my memory and a part of, I hope, my attitude toward other people in the world. So as we strive to live by God's true values, we need to value our neighbors. We need to value others better than ourselves, as we saw in Philippians 2 and verse 5. We always need to have the attitude of a servant and follow Christ's example, follow Christ's example of servant leadership. The motto of Living University is recapture true values. God expects us to live those values as commanded in his holy word, the Bible. In the Living University catalog, the founder's statement, page 41, Dr. Meredith writes, quote, At Living University, in all we do, we challenge each other to fulfill our motto, recapture true values, by demonstrating our core values of leadership, service, commitment, integrity, excellence, culture, and creativity. These values are embedded in God's way of life as detailed in the Bible. Now, does that mean we reject advances in knowledge, ignore the arts and humanities, isolate ourselves from society, hold our culture in contempt and eschew the sciences? Of course not. But how do we determine what is a true value? One simple principle is asked, does this action, thought, philosophy, program, and relationship honor God? 
Does this principle or this value honor God? So we need to ask in looking at all the aspects of society, what are the true values of sports, of business, of literature, science, industry? But let's take a look at a few of them. What are the true values of sports? Well, before we get to that, let's turn to Colossians 3. You see, one of the overriding principles when we consider whether this is a true value in sports or this is a true value in music or this is a true value in business, this is an overriding principle. Colossians 3 and verse 14. We'll start there. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That has to be a part of your character, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. But here's the key. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think back this past week, and would you say every thought, every action was done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God? Maybe you sinned. But hopefully you recognize that sin and have repented of it, confessed to God, and asked His forgiveness. But if you want to know whether it's a true value or not, just ask, am I doing this in the name of Jesus Christ? Will it honor God in what I'm doing? He said, you are the light of the world. So we need to think the way God thinks. Dr. Meredith wrote an article in the Tomorrow's World magazine, March, April 2002, What Would Jesus Do? That was quite a common uh, mantra over a period of time. I'll read from the article. All across the United States, Dr. Meredith writes, young people are wearing WWJD. WWJD hats, bracelets, and other items. Some few really want to know what Jesus would do if he were alive on earth today. But for the most part, it was just a fad, an item of clothing, or a cute gimmick. So what would Jesus really do? We have to go to the Bible. We know his principles, the true values he gave us. Like Acts 20.35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Dr. Meredith continues, if folks really want to know what Jesus would do, how can they find the absolute authoritative answer? How can they know what Jesus would actually do? The answer is simple. Yes, simple. Because if you believe that the Bible truly is the inspired word of God, then you can pretty well narrow down what Jesus would do in most situations if he were alive in the flesh on earth today. The key to genuine understanding on this topic is found in the New Testament book of Hebrews where God tells us 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. The inspired scripture indicates that Jesus would do as he did do while in the human flesh. And many other scriptures indicate the same. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. John 10, verse 30. And in Malachi 3, 6, God tells us, I am the Lord, I do not change. Again, Jesus himself tells us, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. He strictly charged his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Dr. Meredith writes, wow, explanation point. How plain can it be? The Jesus Christ of your Bible did not want a different teaching introduced or a different example presented to the world after he ascended to heaven. He wanted his true servants to go out and teach the same message, the same way of life, all things to all nations, not just the Jews. We have sermon number 781, Dr. Meredith's sermon, What Would Jesus Really Do? So what are true values? They are standards, they're principles based on God's word. True values include the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, verse 22. But how would we apply true values to sports, for example? My wife was telling me about an article she just read, I think it was yesterday, about the dangers of concussions in football. It told the story of one teenage boy in high school who died from a concussion injury in football and how, of course, sad it was and tragic for the family. Obviously, one of the true values of sports is not to injure other athletes. Mr. Jim Petty was athletic director at Ambassador College in Pasadena. He and I would um, play chess or bridge together. And he wrote an article for the January 1983 Plain Truth magazine titled, What is the Major Purpose of Sports? So some of you have thought about the true values of sports and you're striving to apply those values. He writes, for sports to be beautiful, there must be a recognition by all concerned of the major purpose of sports. That major purpose is to teach and instill true values and proper attitudes in those who participate. He gives the example of Jacob wrestling. And I know when I was director of admissions, you know that anyone who was a wrestler was a person who persevered, and uh, that uh, individual would get higher marks in terms of consideration for admission to Ambassador College. The Creator God, Jim Petty writes, values the attribute of enduring so much so that he once came to this earth, appeared in the form of a man, and engaged in a wrestling match with the Hebrew patriarch Jacob. As a result of Jacob's endurance and tenacity in this match, the Creator God blessed him and changed his name to Israel, meaning one who prevails with God. Just a couple more paragraphs, but I think they're valuable to get a perspective on the true values of sports. Another true value, he writes, to teach in sports is patience. Sports will always have its obstacles, failures, delays, trials, and pains. 
Participants must be taught to meet these difficulties with calmness, equanimity, and without complaint. Players should be taught that selfishness, egoism, egotism, envy, and criticism of each other quickly evaporates team spirit and harms the level of effectiveness of a team just as it does in everyday life. He concludes, sports can be beautiful or ugly or anything in between. It all depends on the attitude of the players, coaches, and spectators. To know what the right attitude is, we need to look to our maker, the great God, his basic law is love and outflowing concern toward others. To harm the other fellow and to gain by doing so for self is a wrong attitude. Winning or losing is only a byproduct of two teams or individuals striving to do their best. So Christ came for um, several reasons, but one was to set us an example of abundant living. Let's turn back there to John, the 10th chapter, John 10, and realize that how can you have an abundant living, abundant life? Well, because you live the same way he lived, by giving and serving and helping and sharing and fulfilling the Great Commission and the sevenfold mission that we've outlined here for the church. John 10, he gives the contrast between Satan's way of life and God's way of life. John 10, verse 10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Oh, God wants us to enjoy life. And we enjoy it when we obey his commandments, when we fulfill his way of giving and sharing and helping and loving. So we apply that in sports. We imply that in music. So what are the true values of music? The July-August LCN 2014, just a few months ago, we had the article by Mr. Carl Beiersdorfer on the power of music. Mr. Beiersdorfer writes, quote, I heard one man tell me one time, I don't come to Sabbath services to learn to be a Caruso. He was right. It is not that there is anything wrong with musical training. God designed some voices to be trained, but he intended all voices to praise him. What is important to God and should be important to us is the heart of the person who is singing. Then we also had an article in the May-June 2014 LCN by Mr. Don White titled, Singing Together on the Sabbath. So what values do we have in music? He writes, but what if you feel that you are not a good singer? It turns out you do not even need to be a good singer to reap the rewards of singing. According to one 2005 study, group singing, which we've done today, quote, can produce satisfying and therapeutic sensations even when the sound produced by the vocal instrument is of mediocre quality, end of quote. And that's from singingchangesyourbraintime.com, August 16, 2013. We also have a web commentary by Laurel Meyer on the woman-to-woman web commentary titled Music That is Special. Turn to Hebrews, the second chapter, Hebrews 2. 
you realize that we are going to hear, we heard a beautiful voice this afternoon from Mr. Hernandez, but I think he will agree that there is an even more beautiful voice that we will hear in the future, mentioned here in Hebrews, the second chapter, starting with verse 10. Of course, the book of Hebrews is a priesthood book. It shows the office and power and authority of Christ as our great high priest. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So the context here is showing that Jesus considers you his brothers and sisters. And, of course, that other example he gave one time when his mother and brothers were outside, he said, who are my mothers and brothers? He is my mother and my brother, mother and brother and sister, who does the will of my father. But Jesus is showing he wants you as a brother and sister. And in that context, it continues as another evidence of that love towards you as a brother or a sister. Verse 12 saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. This is quoted from Psalm 22, verse 22. This is Jesus saying, I am going to sing to you, Father, in the midst of the assembly. We will hear Jesus sing sometime in the future. We will know the ultimate in the true values of music. What are the true values of entertainment? We'll experience those in the fun show tonight. As I mentioned, Mr. McNair had asked the performers to comment on the purpose of entertainment. I'll just read a couple more. I read one earlier at the beginning of the sermon. And this comment is co-authored by two, two teenage girls. Quote, Overall, we think that the fun show is a challenge and an opportunity for clean, godly entertainment, which is hard to find, but when you do, it is incredibly enjoyable. End of quote. So we'll see that incredibly enjoyable fun show tonight. This is a little longer, but a little more profound. That's when I realized that how I view the fun show as a whole. It's an opportunity to share our love with one another and to share God's gift to us individually with the entirety of the congregation. The fun show is fun, yes, but it's also something more. It's quality entertainment that's as enjoyable to participate in as it is to watch. It gives me personally the chance to share something with everyone that I'm sometimes too nervous and scared to share myself. Even if I'm shaking from adrenaline when I walk on stage, it isn't about me. It's about all of us as a family and as God's people. It's about honoring the legends who have gone before us and carrying on their legacy by living God's way as fully as we can. 
even if a part of my way is simply singing in the fun show or performing special music, I hope to do that to the best of my ability so I can hopefully one day stand in front of God, stand in front of God's throne and honestly answer the question, how have you used the gifts I've given you? End of quote. These are beautiful attitudes. None of us is perfect. We're striving to apply those living values in our lives, in every aspect of our lives. God is giving us in our youth uh, tremendous opportunities. I hope that all of you did receive the November, December Living Youth uh, tabloid. It's Living Youth Camps uh, 2014. We have a comment here on uh, page 2. Training in leadership. And this is my comment, by the way. Quote, while there is always room for improvement, God blessed the hard work of the staff, volunteers, and campers as they were all striving to recapture true values of sports, music, service, and life. In my view, the Camp Lazarus LYC was more than a success. It was a model of education, leadership training, inspiration, motivation, and spiritual growth for the coming kingdom. Our youth are growing in godly character and lifetime experiences that will prepare them for significant service in God's work, God's church, and eventually God's kingdom. Be sure to pray for all the living youth programs around the world. I want to give you one more challenge. We've talked about true values in sports, true values in music and entertainment. Are you recapturing the true values of humor? When you turn on the television set, you get degrading, offensive humor. Let's take a look at a couple of scriptures. Ephesians, the third chapter. And these are warnings in how sad it is that some of us see on uh, individuals' Facebook pages or on the Internet some Comments intended to be humorous, but as Christians are terribly offensive. Chapter 5, verse 3 of Ephesians. But fornication in all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking. How many of us have participated in foolish talking, notice, nor coarse jesting. What is your brand of humor? What do you laugh at? Do you laugh at coarse jesting? How do you respond to it? Which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Take a look at another warning here in Proverbs 26 and verse 18. Proverbs 26 In verse 18, are you recapturing the true values of humor? Proverbs 26, verse 18. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. You know, they have this... uh, Practical jokes, you know, on television. I don't even spend time watching it, but I can just get the sense that it's not that pleasant for the one who's on whom the joke is played. 
I know one time years ago in, in uh, Ambassador College, I had two dorm mates, and they, uh, it was my experience, they, it was linen day, so we changed the, the bedding on our beds, and I thought, oh, my, my two roommates, how very kind of them. They made my bed, but it was short-sheeted. In other words, you, you get in, and your feet can only go down about three feet, and then you realize, uh-oh, they played a practical joke on me. But anyway, that was more harmless than some of the practical jokes. But the NKJV says, well, the same thing. Like a madman who throws fire, barons, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Or as the King James Version says, am I not in sport? I was only sporting. I was only kidding. No, that's not God's brand of humor. This uh, book is called Humor, God's Gift by Tal D. Bonham. And uh, just an excellent book. He... Uh, does an analysis of humor in the Bible and uh, gives this uh, warning. We just asked you the question, how do you respond when there's uh, offensive humor? Uh, on page 157, he gives these uh, principles of how do you respond. And I've noticed sometimes I don't automatically laugh. When something is on television or even, uh, you know, in an entertainment program, my mind is always evaluating when it comes to humor. Is this godly humor or is it offensive humor? And if it's offensive humor, I do not laugh. I'm monitoring. And uh, so laundering our humor, page 156, well, 157. He talks about uh, tasteless jokes are the in thing, and it's not always easy to refuse to go along with the crowd. And that's what happens with our young people. They go along with the crowd. They're laughing at offensive humor. And they start to inculcate those kinds of wrong values. But you've got to stand up and test. So, you know, First Thessalonians 5.21, test all things. So on page 157 he writes, Isn't it about time someone refused to, quote, go along with the crowd as far as offensive humor is concerned? Blumenfield and Alpern suggest four reactions to an offensive joke. One, don't laugh. And I don't laugh when I see others laughing at an offensive joke. Reply, I don't think it's funny. Three, if you're feeling brave and feel the insult was intentional, ask the offender. Why would you say something that obviously pokes fun at people's shortcomings? And then fill in the gap with the appropriate phrase. Four, if you want to allow room for the offender to save face, try something like, quote, I'm sure you're not aware of how cruel that joke makes you sound, but many people find that type of humor offensive, and I would appreciate your not repeating it. He has a lot of sections here on positive humor, the laughing factor, and then chapter 2, yes, God has a sense of humor. Uh, gives the example of Balaam's, Balaam's donkey, Talking back to Balaam, you know, that is humorous. And uh, talks about some of the humor that the Apostle Paul had, although that was far and few between. And uh, some of the uh, behavior of Peter, the Apostle Peter, before he was converted and, and his uh, very aggressive nature. Uh, so it's a, it's a good book that, that gives an analysis of humors. But we need to ask ourselves, 
How do we respond to offensive humor? Do we laugh and just go along with the crowd, but let's strive for clean humor, which I'm sure we're going to see tonight, and we should enjoy it. So we live by every word of God. So we've discussed three different areas. We've talked about how God views us. We've talked about how we view others. And we've talked about true values and various aspects of life. Finally, we want to talk about the vanity versus godly values. Let's turn to Galatians, the fifth chapter. We refer to God's Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians, the fifth chapter. The world can sometimes seem to be on the right track when it talks to, to about values. It has a values clarification and talk about our traditional values and so forth. Well, some of them may be biblically based, but some of them may not be biblically based. And that's the question you need to ask. Is it biblically based? And here, of course, is the bottom line in terms of righteousness and values the fruits of God's Holy Spirit. Verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So those are God's values. But what are the values that precede it? Look back there in verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. We mentioned selfish ambition earlier. Dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as also I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we've got the basis for what is true values and what are not true values. We might take a look here briefly at Ecclesiastes. Turn back to Ecclesiastes. What is lasting value and what is not lasting value? Here, King Solomon, who had it all. He had all the wealth in the world, all the wine, women, song, and everything. But he had to conclude that all of those physical, material things could be enjoyed in vain. In other words, they just were not lasting. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What lesson did he have to learn? He had to learn that there were deeper values that lasted longer than just today and tomorrow that added value to your eternal, righteous, holy character. And that's what God is creating as the masterpiece of His creation in you and me. And sometimes it takes suffering for us to learn those lessons. But vanity is anything that doesn't last. So we need to ask, will this sporting activity, will this movie, will this television show, will this texting, will this post on Facebook add to godly character? Is it vanity? Or will it detract from my character? Will this action, this thought, develop godly character that will last forever? That's the difference between vanity and God's true values. We've had several sermons on values. 
Sermon number 58, Recapture Values of Respect by Mr. D. Barapardian. Number 318, Recapture True Values. Number 401, Lasting Values. Number 48, Another Recapturing True Values. And number 449, The Importance of Character by Dr. Meredith. And we know the conclusion of that experiment by King Solomon of wine, women, and song. And that's Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. I turn back there, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Again, one of those memorization verses. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. Or as the NIV has it, this is the duty of all mankind. Or the King James Version, this is the whole duty of man. Or the NASB, because this applies to every person. So we need to test ourselves and see what are the greatest values of all. The greatest values of all are God's great commandments. We might turn there, Mark, the 12th chapter, Mark 12. And we heard the first commandment referred to and expounded in its relationship to family and the sermonette. Mark, the 12th chapter. Jesus, again, repeated the first and second great commandment. Mark 12, verse 29. The first of all the commandments says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor As yourself, there is no other commandment greater than these. So we love God. We love our neighbors. We're fulfilling God's work and fulfilling His will. And we are loving Him. So the one of the highest values we practice, of course, are the first two great commandments, but also fulfilling God's will and fulfilling His work. In today's sermon, we discuss four major elements of living values. One, how God values us. Two, how we should value others. And that quotable quote, every human being is precious in God's sight. Three, how to recapture true values. And four, how to choose between true values and vanity. So as we look forward to the Passover season, let's strive with our whole hearts to seek God's kingdom and His righteousness above all else. We can enjoy abundant living by giving, loving, sharing, caring, and helping. We need to stand up for God's values and make them a part of our eternal godly character. And we need to reject the world's values. God has paid the highest price in the universe to redeem you and me. He values you. You are important in God's plan, in His family, and in the context of the whole universe. I'm reminded of the last part of Galatians 2.20 that the Apostle Paul talked about, Dr. Meredith's favorite verse, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Think of that as your personal relationship to your Savior as we look forward to the memorial of his death. Our Father in heaven and our Savior value each of us very highly. God wants you to be in his royal family and in his kingdom forever. So if we follow the example of Christ as loving our neighbors as ourselves, we're doing his work, which is the highest value of any mission on earth, as we walk with God, as we recapture living values through Christ living his life in us, then we can teach the whole world to live the priceless values of life and peace forevermore. Let's practice living values.